Amen, amen. You know, the first time I've ever done, uh, I did, ever did a burpee was uh, with Pastor Rodney. If you don't know Pastor Rodney, you gotta know he loves to work out. I love to eat. That w- that's what makes it such a great combination, right? And <laughs> I remember uh, we did burpees together one time. It, how many of y'all know what a burpee is? Okay. Uh, it is one of the most painful things that you can put yourself through. Uh, fun fact, it was actually created back in the day by this guy named Satan. <laughs> Maybe you read about him. <laughs> and I remember doing burpees with Pastor Rodney. I was thinking, man, I chose this. This was my own, I voluntarily put myself in this situation. I was thinking of the things that we voluntarily experienced pain in. And then I thought about the things that my wife voluntarily uh, went through pain, uh, and probably childbirth is pretty high on that list for her. Uh, and when I think of childbirth, I think it's probably like doing burpees with Pastor Rodney, but like times a million, all right? Some of y'all were about to jump on me I, until I finished that sentence, okay? And, and I, it made me think of uh, when my wife actually gave birth to our firstborn, uh, which is Charlie, um, and Charlie's about four years old now, but I, I was in the room when it happened, and it was a whole long process. There was like four hours of pushing, okay? And I remember by hour three, I was tired. In fact, I left to go eat a sandwich. True story. And then I came back, and I was like, all right, let's proceed. And we went for another hour, and it didn't, listen, so we actually ended up having to do like a C-section. It was like a whole thing. And uh, I remember that what was amazing about being in that room is that every single person in that room were solely focused on one thing, one goal, and that is to bring that baby out into this world safely for baby and for mommy. And as I'm thinking about that, I just want you to think with me, what if, what if there was somebody else in that room with a completely different intention? Instead of bringing that baby safely into this world, what if there was somebody in that room that as soon as that baby came into this world, that what they wanted to do was take that baby and kill it? And I know sometimes we read Bible passages and we just think of them kind of like stories. We kind of move on. But this was the reality for the Jewish people in the passage we're about to read in Exodus chapter one. That there was an attack And there was an intention to wipe them out. So as we look at this passage, I want you to, if you want to thumb through that passage, uh, Exodus chapter 1. I'll give you a little bit of context for Exodus chapter 1. So the first thing you got to know is that Exodus is the second book of the first five books of the Old Testament. You may have heard it been called the Pentateuch, which is another way of saying five books. Uh, Or maybe you've heard Jewish people call it the Torah. Uh, And so that's another word for it. But these five books, I like to think of them as kind of like the Fast and Furious franchise of the Bible. Because it's really meant to be understood as one cohesive story, one big story, all connected. In fact, uh, you know, as you're reading Exodus, which is the, the second book, the Too Fast, Too Furious of the series, as you're reading it, you have this realization that this is really just a continuation of Joseph's story. In fact, the very first line of the book uh, was actually the name uh, that people used to call it the ancient times. We call it Exodus, uh, but back in the day, it was actually the name of the book was, and these are the names, and these are the names, because that was the very first line of the book. 
And then it goes and lists the names of the patriarchs, the, the, the people that started this whole thing, the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, all of them, and just lists them all out. And then we get to this passage of scripture, verse six, Exodus chapter one, verse six. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled of them. And so this is supposed to be a callback to Genesis 128. You remember when God looks at Adam and Eve and says, go, be fruitful, and multiply. And so the people of Israel are doing that. Verse 8, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Now that last line, leave the country, is kind of a mistranslation because it's an idiom. And what it really means in Hebrew is they will overthrow the country. And so the Pharaoh looked at these Jewish people and said, oh, these guys are a threat. And if we're not careful, they're gonna overthrow us. Verse 11, so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for the Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Think about that for a second. The more they would push down, the more they continued to grow. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So plan A for the Pharaoh is first to enslave God's people. And plan B is to be ruthless to them, to make their slavery even more harsh. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. Now, you might assume, why are there only two midwives? Probably these were the two administrators. They were all over all of the midwives in the region. Verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. So here's plan C for population control. It's a secret plan. He's employing the midwives to secretly kill the baby boys born to the Israelite people. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the baby boys live. Verse 18, actually, think about this for a second before we get to verse 18. This is the first act of civil disobedience we see in the scripture. They are choosing to fear God over the Pharaoh. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered the Pharaoh, and look at this, they, they kind of play into his racism, okay? They say, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. And look at what they say, they are more vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Isn't that brilliant? They were cunning in their response. Verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God rewards the midwives for their bravery. 
So why does this story matter? Let me give you three things. First is this. There is a plan to wipe out God's people. There is a plan to wipe out God's people. Think about the progression in Pharaoh's plan. First, it's to enslave God's people, right? And isn't that the same thing the devil tries to employ upon us, right? He wants to enslave us in our addictions, have us chasing our ambitions, our work, our job, our, our, our schooling, all that, and, then, and it takes us priority in our life. And he wants us to chase uh, the, our need for acceptance. And suddenly we, we just want all the likes. We want everyone to, to be pleased by us. And then what's the second part of his plan? He wants to make them suffer, to be even more harsh. And it's not the same thing the devil does to us that when we're caught up in our addictions and our ambitions and our need for acceptance, eventually those things start catching up to us, right? And it causes anxiety and worry in our life. And that starts to bury us. That's what the devil does to us, right? And then his plan is to kill the children, the baby boys. Why the baby boys? Because if there was a revolution, who would stand up and fight? It would be these men that would be soldiers and warriors. And so the Pharisees says, I'll just wipe them out before they ever amount to being a threat. And can I tell you, that word kill is not a metaphor. The devil literally wants to kill you, to wipe you out, to take you off the board before you ever amount to being a threat to his kingdom. That's his plan. Jesus says this in John 10. He says, the thief comes only to what? Steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, the enemy's plan and God's plan is working at the same time. But can I warn you, sometimes we do this false equivalence thing where we try to think that, that the enemy's plan and God's plan are somehow on equal planes. And they're not. In fact, let me give you this analogy. Uh, last year, uh, my wife and I, took a trip to Scotland to visit some of our missionary friends. And we were in London and we took a train ride from London to Scotland. It was about a four hour ride. And you know, we'd never really ridden a train for that long. And uh, so we, we showed up early, we got into our seats early. We we're like the first people in our train car. Uh, and then other people started coming in and started filling up. And eventually all the seats are taken and even more people are coming in. And suddenly we start hearing arguments, like people walking up to other people like, hey, that's my seat. Or my ticket, that's my seat. And suddenly the voice of Siri, comes on the, uh, the loudspeaker. And Siri's like, if you bought your ticket before July of this year, we accidentally deleted your ticket and we've rebooked all the seats. And as soon as the, the, the message ends, the train is already going, okay? The train is already moving and there's a huge commotion. Everyone's mad. And like the conductor guy shows up and he's trying to get everybody settled into a seat somewhere. And my wife looks at the conductor and says, hey, should we give up our seat? And I'm like, what are you doing? It's a four-hour ride. Like, and the conductor looks at us and says, no, it's okay, I got this. And eventually, it takes about an hour, but he eventually gets everybody situated in a seat. So here's the analogy. The devil's plan is what happens inside that little rail car. It's disruptive. It's painful at times. And it kind of ruins the trip a little bit for some people. But I want you to think about this. From the moment we got on that train, we've been on our way to Stirling, Scotland. And the train has never stopped, no matter what's going on inside the rail car. See, the devil's plan 
is what happens inside that rail car. He could disrupt things. He could make things more painful. He could make things uncomfortable because he's got that power in that rail car. But guess what he can't do? He cannot stop the train. We're still on our way to Scotland. And that's God's power. That's God's plan. He cannot be thwarted. His plans cannot be stopped. And so when you see the devil's plan and God's plan, do not be fooled. It is not the same thing. In fact, look at this. Uh, Genesis 15, if you remember the passage, uh, God brings Abraham out into the night and says, look at the stars. Can you count them? He says, this is how your offspring will be innumerable. He makes his promise. And then verse 13, this is what God says to Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Think about that for a second. The slavery, the ruthlessness, the pain, that was all a part of God's plan somehow. God was using the enemy's plan against him. Verse 14, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. See, God's plan, God's plan is big. In fact, there is a plan to wipe out God's people, but here's the rest of the story. But God's plan, God has a bigger plan. But God has a bigger plan. And he cannot be stopped. I know right now, it might seem like, you know what, life is hard. Maybe work feels hard. Maybe marriage feels hard. Maybe singleness feels hard. Maybe parenting seems hard. I don't know. And it feels like your little rail cart is flipped upside down. But can I tell you, no matter what disruption you're facing in life, God cannot be stopped. His plan for you cannot be stopped. You are on a trajectory towards his plan. That's what God does. Here's number two. There will always be a need for a deliverer. There will always be a need for a deliverer. You know, this book starts off by saying what? These are the names and these are the names. So names matter in this book. And after it lists off Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all of the the patriarchs of the Israelites, the two names that we come across are Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua. And you might say, hey, why are these the two names? It's interesting because the Pharaoh, we don't even know the Pharaoh's name. God purposely leaves out his name. We just know the Pharaoh is a title. It means king of Egypt. But we know Shifra and Pua's name. And I think it's kind of like, you know, remember the New Testament where Mary's anointing Jesus and the disciples are kind of disgruntled about it for whatever reason. And he looks at them and says, listen, anywhere that this story is told, she will be remembered. And that's what God is doing here with Shifra and Pua. Anywhere the Exodus story is told, you will remember Shifra and Pua. They are the unlikely heroes of this story. Well, what makes them unlikely? Think about it. First, they're midwives. They're not soldiers, not warriors, they're not politicians. They're midwives, they're tradespeople. Two, they're women. In a very male-dominated society. And the Pharaoh is not just a man, but he considers himself a god. So here are two women standing up against a man who thinks he's a god. And three, they might not even be Hebrew women. In fact, a lot of Jewish people believe the Shifra and Pua are actually Egyptian women. 
Because why, if the Pharaoh's racist, why would he keep Hebrews as part of his administration? Most likely they were over the labor and delivery department of the Hebrew people. And they were Egyptians. They had no need to save these people. That makes them unlikely. But what makes them heroes? First, they chose to fear God over the Pharaoh. You know, it doesn't even say they feared the Pharaoh at all. But they feared God. Two, the Pharaoh doesn't even consider them a threat because they're women. Isn't that the way God works? That it's always the ones the enemy can't even consider a threat that God uses. And three, they are courageous to act. They are so bold in their actions. They are willing to disobey the most powerful person in their world. So yes, there will always be a need for a deliverer, but there's more to the story, but it won't be who you think. It won't be who you think. I was thinking in my life who was a deliverer, uh, an unlikely hero in my life. And for me, that was my grandfather. My grandfather uh, was uh, very sick most of my life, uh, my young life. He was in a wheelchair. He had to get out of bed into a wheelchair. And going to church was a very hard thing for him, but he always did. And he wanted to see his family, his kids and his grandkids, know Jesus. And so he'd always invite my dad to come to church. And my dad would always say no. And he'd never take us. And finally, one day, somehow, he invited my dad. Instead of inviting my dad, he invited me and my sister. I was eight years old at the time. And for whatever reason, my dad said yes that time. And so my dad, or my grandfather, who had a hard time to go to church by himself, took us with him to church. And there, that Sunday, I got saved. And then through that, my dad, my mom, my sister... The devil might have looked at my grandfather, saw him in his wheelchair, and said, you know what? This guy's not a threat. But he was a threat, because here I am, standing in front of you. You might be, you know what? You might be, as we're talking about nations in our area, you might be presented with opportunities to minister to someone, to, to share the gospel, to invite someone to church, to say, hey, you know what? I, can I pray for you? I see that you have, you're kind of troubled right now. Can I pray for you? And you might say in your head, oh, I can't do that because, you know, I don't really like praying out loud or read my Bible enough or I'm not a pastor. I'm not an evangelist. In the equation of an unlikely hero, you know what? You got the unlikely part down. Now you just need the hero part. Now you just need the courage to act like Shifra and Pua. That's what they were known for. And that's what God is calling us to do. Here's number three. It will always look like the enemy is winning. It will always look like the enemy is winning. I read every verse in that chapter, or up to, up to every verse, except for this last one. And it, it's because this last verse is kind of like a cold, wet blanket on the whole story. After all the heroism... After all the hard work by, by the midwives, this is what the Pharaoh does. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River. But you may let the, boys, you may let the girls live. After all of that, the Pharaoh says, you know what? Forget it with the secret plan. Let's just go with the overt plan. Let's just go ahead and kill all the baby boys. And I was thinking, like, why is... Why is the enemy so intent on wiping out these baby boys? Why? If you remember from last week, from Pastor's sermon, I'm going to borrow from you a little bit, Pastor. When God is cursing the serpent, he looks at the serpent 
And he said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So from that point on, the devil knew that there was a deliverer coming that will be an end to him and salvation to God's people. And so from that point on, here's the devil doesn't know who or how or when, but he can see who God is choosing from time to time. And he saw that God chose Adam and Eve. And then from Adam and Eve, he chose Noah. And then from Noah, he chose Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob, who we later know as Israel. And then now Israel has 12 sons. So I'm sure the devil was really confused. Like, who do I wipe out? There's 12 of them now. So you know what? I'm just going to cut the line completely. I'm just going to wipe out all of them. So that was his plan. But what does Shifra and Pua do? They preserve the line. They preserve the line. They preserve the line first to a guy, a deliverer that we know as Moses. But beyond that, because Moses was a deliverer, but he was not the deliverer, they preserve the line all the way to a young lady that we know as Mary, who does deliver the deliverer. And his name is Jesus. Shifra and Pua had the greatest assist in the Old Testament, okay? They passed that ball all the way to Mary, who does deliver the deliverer. That's how God works. That's how his plan works. So yes, it will always look like the enemy is winning. But here's the rest of the story. But we have victory in Jesus. We have victory in Jesus. You know, over Christmas, I ran into a young lady out here in the lobby. Her name is Caitlin, Caitlin Barnett. In fact, I have a picture of her. She's right here. Caitlin's mom goes to our church. Her name is Melissa. Caitlin was just visiting. She lives in New York. Uh, she grew up here, though, uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, graduated Memorial, uh, went to OSU. That's the only knock I had on her. She went to OSU. She, she graduated. God, God called her to missions with an organization called Inter, the International Project. And we're talking about nations in our neighborhood over this series. And, you know, it's incredible because the part of New York where she lives now Americans are the minority. People from all across the nations live in the neighborhood she, li- she lives in. And so those are the people she ministers to. And as I ran into her during the Christmas service, she starts telling me this incredible story. And I was like, listen, we gotta schedule a call. I gotta hear this. So we schedule a call and she tells me a story about, of a young lady. And I can't tell you her real name. Uh, I'll just, we'll just call her Sarah. Young lady named Sarah uh, grew up in Michigan. She's Israeli from a very devout Muslim family. And Sarah, uh, when she gets to college, meets a young American boy, starts dating. Her parents find out she wasn't allowed to. And they decide to take a family trip to Israel. When they were in Israel, her parents take her to the basement of her grandfather's house, strip her, beat her. And her mom looks at her dad, hands him a knife, and said, I want you to kill her right now. We don't want this girl to be a part of our family. And by the grace of God, her dad doesn't follow through, but he does say, listen, when we go back to Michigan, you're not leaving our site. You're gonna go to class, you're gonna come back, you won't have any cell phones, we're gonna watch everything that you do. So they go back to Michigan. She goes to her class, and there she meets a Christian professor, a praying woman, who can tell something is wrong with Sarah. So she asks, can I pray for you? 
And then she looks at her and said, listen, I can tell something is wrong. So you just tell me where and when, and I will get you to a safe place. And so Sarah gives her a signal one day. She brings her car around. She jumps in. And this professor drives her all the way to Pennsylvania to a Christian shelter. And every day at that Christian shelter, Sarah would hear the gospel. And every night she would go to her room, roll out her prayer rug, and pray to Allah. Because she was still a Muslim. And one night in that shelter, she has this dream. And in this dream, she sees Jesus. And Jesus looks at Sarah and says, Sarah, you need to be cleansed. And he takes her to water and he baptizes her. Sarah has no idea what this means. So she just kind of goes on with life. Nearly a decade later, Sarah finds a job. She moves to New York. And somebody who's a mutual friend connects Caitlin and says, Caitlin, you need to meet this girl. Her name is Sarah. And Caitlin says, perfect. I have this Bible study. I invite her. She invites her to a Bible study in her apartment with a group of other few girls. And she shares the gospel. And there, a young lady got saved. And this is what happened. Look at this. This isn't Sarah. This is another girl named Alexa who decided to get baptized in Caitlin's tub. Someone had to stand on a toilet to take this picture. And there in that small apartment, Sarah sees Alexa getting baptized and says, I saw this in my dream. And she looks at Caitlin and says, Jesus has been chasing me my whole life. And I'm ready to stop running. And guess who's getting baptized now? Sarah. I share that with you because maybe you're here, and I don't. I put God put this on my heart, so I have to say it. Maybe you said these words, maybe these exact words, even. You said to yourself, you know, this whole Jesus thing is completely unbelievable. I I can't believe it. Like death and resurrection, I cannot believe that thing. Can I tell you the most unbelievable thing about Jesus is not that he died and rose again, but that he died and rose again for you and me. Because we did not deserve it. We were completely unworthy. But God, in his infinite plan, in his infinite plan, chose to step down onto this earth and onto a cross where he died and he went to a grave and three days later he came out holding the keys of hell in the grave to offer you new life and can I just ask like what if if you're that person you're saying I can't believe this thing what if this whole thing was a setup what if this is your rail car and this is your train stop And God has orchestrated all of history to this moment right here. What if God put Shifra and Pua on this planet to preserve a line all the way from here to right here in this moment for you? Because he loves you that big and his plan for you is that big. And he's saying to you, I've been chasing you before your life even started. Would you turn him down? Don't. Don't. He is here for you. So here's what I want to give you, an opportunity to accept him, to do what Sarah did and what Alexa did, what I did as an eight-year-old, to say I'm ready to follow you. 
So here's what I want to do with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here and you're saying, I'm ready to take that step, I want to pray a prayer with you. And ask everyone to pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I want to live for you. I want my life to be about you. In Jesus' name, amen.